0: this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the honor today of having Pete Newell, who is the co-founder and managing partner of BMNT, a company that provides early stage investments to companies developing technology for the commercial market that have relevant applications in solving national security problems. He is a co-author of Hacking for Defense, a platform that merged the rapid problem-solving techniques curated on the battlefields of Iraq and Afghanistan with a lean startup methodology developed by Steve Blank in Silicon Valley. Pete is retired from the U.S. Army as a colonel in 2013. He is an Army Ranger who has received numerous military awards and decorations to include the Silver Star and the Presidential Unit Citation. It's an honor to have you on the podcast with me today, and let me first start by saying thank you for your service.
1: Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks.
0: Well, I like to start this out uh, with something I call bullish and bearish. Mm -hmm. Nothing too painful, uh, but bullish is if you're really for something, and bearish is if You're not for it. Uh, We don't want to say against it, but sort of less for it, if you will. And so uh, nothing too too crazy, but it's just three quick questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. All righty. So the first one is, artificial intelligence will be able to problem solve better than humans.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: All right. So we're going to go bullish with that one. All right. The next one is, Innovation is about people.
1: Innovation is about sociology more than it is about technology.
0: All right, we'll go with that one. I like that too. And the third one is white hat hackers can help us solve complex problems.
1: White hat hackers are part of the ecosystem necessary to solve um, big, nasty, gnarly problems. Yes.
0: Excellent. Well, I knew that those would be uh, softballs for you <laughs> because because of what those you do. come
1: back and haunt me. Thank you. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, before we dig into my questions, you know, I'd love to just kind of hear your journey of how you've kind of gone from the battlefield to the boardroom, because I think it's just so fascinating, you know, how to take everything that you've learned, uh, along your, you know, illustrious career in the army and transferred that into the business life?
1: So I would like to say that there was a master plan and that I, you know, I followed something and, and all this happened. Um, I'm still trying to find the person who wrote that plan. Um, you know, the bottom line is it, I call it serendipity. It was just a series of things that happened that, that you know, you took a left turn or a right turn and kept following a path and and things just kept happening that you um, took advantage of. Um, in my case, yeah, you know, I'm a longtime Army officer. I spent all my time in tactical units, which means um, I'm an infantryman, not not a scientist, not an engineer, not an acquisition officer. So I don't have a background that would lend itself to this kind of environment. Um, I, in fact, commanded a, a an Army brigade, which is you know a unit of about 5,000 people in Southern Iraq in uh, 2009, 2010. And, you know, folks thought I was doing really well. They wanted to groom you to be a general. So they said, you know, we'll take care of your next job. And, you know, what happens is they put you into this book of files. And whenever somebody wants an aide, like the, you know, the secretary of defense or the chairman or somebody like that then they pull one of these files out and and you know, I just happened to land in that book well they always put more files in there than they have jobs and and at the end if if you're not one of the selectees you're you kind of left hanging in the wind and I was one of the folks left hanging in the wind um, somebody decided that you know they were going to help me out anyway and find me a job and, and eventually I they landed in an organization called the Army's Rapid Occuping Force. And in fact, when they told me this was where it was going, I had to Google it to figure out what it was, which was a really bad sign. And it turns out that REF, the Rapid Occuping Force, was essentially the Army's Ferrari of skunkworks. It was a, a small organization that had a fairly significant budget. And it only worked for one person, and that was the four-star general who was the, you know, Vice Chief of Staff of the Army, the number two guy. And their job was simply to go out and find emerging problems on the battlefield and and then find emerging technologies that could be rapidly adapted and reapplied to the, to the battlefield. But in my case, rather than bring a technologist in who knew the technology, they ended up with somebody who knew the problems and who knew the language and knew where to look for things and, and knew what to pass over and not get involved with, which was very different than most research and, and technology organizations are built. Between 2010, and 2013, I ended up rebuilding that organization not to be product-focused in terms of what can we produce, as much as it was problem-focused. In other words, what, what kind of new nasty things can you find that need to be fixed, and then how do we articulate that into a much broader audience and recruit those people or agitate them into working on those problems at our behalf? I mean, this is you know where the sociology comment comes from. It, it wasn't about the technology. It's, it's not hard to find tech. It's really hard to get that tech conditioned and attached to the right kind of problem with the right group that it actually deploys someplace. Um, long story short, I got addicted to it. Um, At one point, I was looking for a specific technology and I ended up on the campus at at Stanford University uh, looking for a professor who who knew a lot about this one thing. And and over the course of my conversation, he convinced me that the technology I was looking for was well outside the time frame that I would ever get my hands on it. But in walking across campus and, and wandering around you know, Palo Alto, I ended up with a guy who essentially took me on a pub crawl of startups. And, and I had these the most fascinating conversations with young men and women who were building companies. And it was simply, you know, they'd talk about what they were working on and I'd talk about the problems I had. And, and oftentimes we met in the middle napkin sketches and business cards and dry erase drawings of these really cool conversations that I got to the point where I was sending problems out to Silicon Valley. And I had a guy here who would articulate them back into that environment. And I'd show up a month later and there'd be a room full of really cool people like that to talk to. And it was just, that was not something I could produce from Washington, D.C., so I, I got to the point where, you know, I had to make a decision to stay in the Army and pursue the track of becoming a general or or doing something else. And what I realized is that I was addicted to what I was doing. So the guy that I met at Stanford convinced me to come out here and kind of reinvent what I was doing at the Army's Rapid Equipment Force. Now, I will tell you, the Rapid Equipment Force, I had a $150, $160 million a year budget. We got so good at generating problems and generating these social ecosystems around them that we ended up spending or investing about $1.5 billion in a two-and-a-half-year period. So we built a really beautiful engine for doing this. And when I retired, we essentially wanted to re-engineer that thing to actually work from Silicon Valley's end. In, in other words, rather than sell products to the government, our job was to help the government get their problems into Silicon Valley and train them to behave in a manner that allowed them to function inside the business uh, process that, that works here. Um, 2014, 2015, serendipity struck again and I, I'm prototyping something for somebody and one of the students I'm working with just happened to be taking C Blank's Lean Launchpad class. And, you know, in the middle of class, he's talking to Steve and says, Hey, Steve, you know, these guys at BMT, they sound just like you. Why don't you come down and talk to them? So, unannounced, um, the guy walks through the front door with, with this short gray haired guy and and introduces him as St. Blank. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, I don't have a business background, so I have no idea who Steve is. Um, so, you know, it's one of those uncomfortable okay, I'm going to have a conversation. But Steve and I started talking. It was supposed to be a 20-minute meeting. It went on for about three and a half hours. And Steve started talking about um, Lean Launchpad and, and business model canvases. And I started talking about problem curation and you know, problem-solving ecosystems. We literally drew them both out on dry erase boards. And it turns out that we were talking the same thing our schematics are almost identical and we just used a different language. And to uh, Steve's credit on the way out the door, he, he looked at us and said, I, I want you to take every bit of IP I have in lean and we're going to work together to rewrite it and help the government, the Department of Defense and intelligence agencies do better. And we've been at that ever since. I'm sorry. That's a very long answer to your question.
0: No, but it was what because there are so many things now I want to dig into. So it's exactly why I asked you that question. You know, one of the things you said early in the answer was that you were coming at it from sort of the field, right? Sort of the the first line of understanding what the problem really is versus looking from a high, right, and thinking you know what the problem is. Because I I often hear you know, whether it's it's Steve Blank or whether it's Tom Peters and now you, right? this sort of the first line leaders are these leaders that are bubbling up these challenges and, and uh, opportunities for not only, you know, in this case, the military to do things differently, but on the business side, and I think on the business side, they're not so open to listening to that first line, right, or the bottom up what's really going on in the business. Uh, it's kind of much more top down. Would you agree with that?
1: I, I think in many cases, and here's what I say about, you know, problems is, is no, we don't understand our own problems. And it's not because we're dumb and it's not because we're not trying hard. It, you know, one of the things I learned in Afghanistan in particular is that I never had an honest conversation about what a problem really was until I tried to hand somebody a solution to it. And it's the first time that the conversation got real. Then, unfortunately, particularly within the government, we're all about writing requirements and then pursuing buying something, which, which is backwards. It it is our lack of investment in understanding our problems that leads us to failed programs and failed purchases and failed launches. It's not necessarily different in the, in the business world. Um, the other the other insight that came from it was in. It's one thing to build demonstrations of things, which anybody can do. It, it's a whole different matter to actually see something deployed. And to deploy something, you not only have to understand the problem and the technology they'll output, but you have to understand the business process by which it gets bought, the policies and regulations that govern how it's used, and, and lots of other things. But if you don't solve for all of that, what you get really good at is producing these really beautiful um, what I call vanity demonstrations to make everybody feel good, but at the end of the day, it doesn't deliver a solution. If if you design a system that's going to hold you accountable for delivering solutions, at one end of the system, yes, you have to generate lots of ideas and, and lots of problems, but then you have to, to create a pipeline that, that gives you the opportunity to have very specific decisions about what moves forward and what doesn't. Which is kind of the beauty of, of how we took problem curation and mashed it with with lean methodology and, and stuck that against you know incubators and and eventually got to the point where we could transition real things that that were um, impactful in solving real problems.
0: And so, how do you think from a put agile aside for a second or lean and talk about the because I. Th- I think the way you just described that, the deploy and the design, and you have to be able to sell it, it has to add value. I'm, I'm guessing there has to be just such tight collaboration between the various people and teams that do that. And how, how have you seen, maybe on two sides of the coin, one where it's naturally from the its inception, com, the company is very good at doing what we You just said, right, from a collaborative standpoint.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Versus
0: the other side of the coin would be we don't do that today, but we need to. And so talk me through how have you helped organizations really break down the silos or the lack of collaboration to really think about, you know, what we're designing is solving a very specific problem and how we deploy it and how customers buy it and how we service it and the value it delivers has to be there in the whole product. Otherwise, like you said, we've got something that makes us feel good, but no one cares about.
1: Sure. Showing you what Steve and I landed on and, and we actually uh, published it in a Harvard Business Review article and and have uh, refined it a great deal since, is the concept of this innovation pipeline. And, it, and it's more than, here's a step-by-step way you do innovation. It, it helps you understand the concept of ecosystem building necessary to allow you to agitate and recruit the people you need to actually get something done over time. So if you look at, you know, an innovation pipeline, it it starts with, you know, how do you source enough ideas and people and technology and concepts and problems to allow you to create a series of collisions between them that enables you to curate the things you're going to work on and then prioritize them. And then what are the decisions you make to allow things to move out of that pool into um, a search and discovery phase of, you know, how do you actually validate that you're working on the right problem and then develop a pathway to deliver a solution to something, which is what lean does so well. And then how do you make decisions after that? But what are you actually going to incubate? And by incubate, it means, you know, I've got the technology involved at the right level. Um, I'm creating an investable entity, which means I have the right team, the right business process, the right IP. And then finally, I've got what what we call um, an adoption readiness level. I have a a first customer. I have a super user who's going to take this off my hands and break it a couple of times and give it back to me. And then how do you make decisions about moves on to, you know, refactoring and conditioning for scalability? And then finally, how do you move that into something that actually transitions and scales? But if, if you develop a discipline process for moving through that, it allows you to look at the individual activities you're doing. I'm running a hackathon, which is my favorite. It's not a pet peeve. People have, they run hackathons with no idea what they intend to get out of them. And from my perspective, a hackathon is great for giving you an idea who's working in the ecosystem around a particular technology or problem space. And that's, that's valuable data, but it's useless unless you deliver it into the next activity, which unfortunately is what more corporations do. Is that they run in these disparate individual activities, but they never connect the output of one to the, to the input of the next one in, in a disciplined manner. And unfortunately, what that's left people with what I call innovation exhaustion is people are so sick of hearing about innovation because it fails to deliver on the promise that people keep giving. it. let me back out of that. Then I'll come back to the idea of this sociology around something is um, there is a, a distinct need to be able to find a problem or articulate it in a manner that is understood by a wider group of people that allows you to agitate and recruit the right people that you can motivate to work on that problem who will eventually work with an expert or the, the people at the other end who are going to use it to actually condition a solution that that not only solves that problem, but solves it in a manner that doesn't disrupt their lifestyle and, and the other 90 problems that they're working on.
0: That is. Massive though. I mean, you know, I, I often, like you, we get opportunities to meet and speak with amazing people all the time. It's, it's, I I feel honored every day. Right. Right. But we will say things like, like that was a two minute, three minute answer, but so hard to execute, especially in an organization that is not built that way. So if, if there was, if there's, you know, I, I, I'm also a firm believer there's never just one thing, but I mean, if, if, you know, someone who's listening goes, yes, like, yes, yes, that's what we need to do. I don't even know where to start. Like, what's the first thing I should do? Or what's the, you know, what, what, how should I approach it? You know, Monday morning, I'm inspired by what I've just heard you say, Pete, and how do I, how do I action that?
1: You know, it's a great question. And I noticed, you know, I was listening to your um, podcast with Steve Blank and and you get into the the question about the frozen metal and our related conversation I had with a large intelligence agency, and then literally I'm sitting in the room with a bunch of, you know, senior mission directors, and we're talking about innovation. And, and the innovation folks from this agency are really pushing hard for these people to free up um, people to come to innovation training so that they can, you know, get their program up and running. And there's a lot of frustration in the room. And one of the mission directors, you know, finally looks at somebody and says, "Listen, I I get it. I need to be innovative. If I don't get innovative, um, our our assets are going to trit, and people are going to die." I said, "But here's my problem. She goes on any given day of the week, I'm I'm manned with ninety percent of the people I'm supposed to have, and of that ninety percent, fifteen percent aren't present for duty. They're either sick, on leave, in training." She goes. But I still have 100% of my information requirements I have to answer on a daily basis. And so what she's saying is, is I've got this innovation debt is I can't free up the capital necessary to do what I know I need to do because I'm so busy answering today's requirements that I'm going to sacrifice the future because nobody will relieve me of that pain point. You know, that's, it's such a beautiful vignette to cancer because you took around and said, listen. If you're starting an innovation program in a large enterprise, the first thing you need to do is recruit people who will solve quick win problems that will help free up capital inside the organization in terms of bodies, time, and money in order to reinvest that into doing bigger things. But if you're an innovation person, your plan is, hey, I'm just going to train a bunch of people and send them back to the shops and they're going to come up with ideas and do something. Listen, they're going to get squashed. Like bugs by their by their directors because there's no time and bandwidth. It's not until you've built up a reputation of doing things value added for those people in the middle that they see you as value added and will give you more freedom, more assets, more things to actually get something done. At that point, you start to get some elbow space where you actually do some pretty good things. That that same conversation allows us to go to the senior leadership of an organization and say, listen, <laughs> You're spending all this money on innovation and doing a bunch of things. But but quite frankly, with your other hand, you're making it impossible to implant because you're not following through with relieving these um, middle managers of the day-to-day requirements they have, nor are you rewarding them for taking any risk at all. So it's a self-defeating system.
0: Right. So, that, you know, and I, and I think that this goes, this is where... Um, I tend to land a lot, and I'd love to hear what you think. Is that for me? I think when we talk about these big ideas, at at its core, in my mind, it has everything to do with change. Yep. And change is really hard. Personally, like I use myself as an example because I don't need to go further than that. Is you know, January first, I'm in the gym. January tenth, I forgot where the gym was. Is it a right or a left? You know. It's right. Okay. So personal change is really tough. Personal disruption in your own life, change your watch from one arm to the other, drive a different way, go to a different coffee shop. I mean, it's, we're kind of creatures of habit in many ways at work. It's almost worse because people don't always reward change because if you fail, that's not good. Right. And so this whole, oh, you have to let people fail and let them try. And these innovation labs, and you're going to carve out 10, 10% of their time, but you know, that's always really difficult because then they find something, but the rest of the organization isn't changing. Like change is hard. And so, you know, what are the things as individuals, as a manager, there's sort of a set of answers that you've just given, but as an individual, if you work for someone who isn't open to this kind of new way of thinking about things, when you've uncovered uh, opportunities, challenges, problems that you can solve by doing something differently, either process led or technology led. Uh, I think this has everything to do with mind, a mind shift versus, um, and a culture shift versus, uh, you know, a technology shift.
1: You know, it, I think it's all three in, in different, and, and I absolutely agree with, with your analogy. The, Understanding individually um, who you are, and, and this is, you uh, talk about the types of people necessary to operate the ecosystem. Um, I talk about innovators, makers, and hackers. You know, the, the, the folks who, who have ideas, who just can't help themselves but think around things over and over again, but they, they do it for the sake of, of generating things. Um, they're not the same as entrepreneurs. In, in that group of people, it's great to generate ideas or great to hack on things, but they're really not um, risk takers beyond what they're expending their own time. It's, it's finding the entrepreneurs in an organization who actually know the guts of the organization well enough to manipulate it to do things, are the ones who can take those innovators and harness you know the brilliance that they have and actually move that stuff through the organization. But those entrepreneurs are people who understand risk and are willing to accept um, varying degrees of risk in order to, to make something impactful happen. The, the challenge sometimes, is that there are lots of people who are innovators who mistake that for being entrepreneurs. And the entrepreneurs, quite frankly, in large enterprise organizations don't self-identify because they're they're the ones that are making things happen in that organization on a daily basis anyway, so they're not necessarily looking for more work. They they're getting things done, but you know culturally we don't we don't provide people the opportunity to find out who they are. I mean, as you know, it, if you're an innovator versus an entrepreneur, you need the opportunity to go out and jack things up. You, you need enough iterations of failure to really discover what your personal style is or what your risk tolerance is or gain the experience to understand what's a risky decision versus what's not. Um, in, in culturally, inside large organizations, they, they, we absolutely do not um, have a professional track for entrepreneurs. We don't build them intentfully. We either acquire them accidentally or they, they self-construct. And quite frankly, in most organizations, if they're not well managed, they just leave and and go someplace else.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think that you know, in my career anyway, I really, I think people would ha- have to do a lot of self reflection to figure out what you are and what you aren't. And then once you identify where your strengths are, and not what you think your strengths are, but maybe more so what people think you know that you work with, what why they invite you to meetings. Right. Why are you part of the team? Why did they hire you? Like when I was going between my last uh, employer and and where I am now at Salesforce, between those two, and you know, everyone's like, "Well, I just you know, why don't you go start your own company and hang your own shingle?" And through this little you know conversation I had with a, a you know trusted entrepreneur friend at the end of this dinner, I realized I'm not an entrepreneur. Like that's just not my thing. I have great ideas. I can, you know, it's. But if you then say, "Great, take that idea. Here's a million dollars, and go start the business," I'd be like, "What? <laughs> it's just, it's not what I do." So I think there's a lot to be said for what you just said uh, very quickly, which was, you know, know what you're good at, whether it's an innovator, a maker, a hacker, you know, and and find your way, and then find a manager or a leader who embraces that and and really supports and lifts up that part of your development. Uh, and as you said, and if you don't, you know, people don't necessarily leave companies, they leave managers because if they squash what you're trying to be and trying to become, it's, it's not good for anybody.
1: No, I mean, I think that's a, that's a beautiful insight. I think you're, you're absolutely right. I, I look at myself and I look at, you know, the partners at bm and and quite frankly, we are not each other. Um, you would, people actually look at us. Yeah, I I love my partners. I love working with them. You wouldn't look at us and say, you know, that, yeah, those three belong together. You know, you get a, a mid fifties year old, you know, retired army colonel, you have a 40 something year old female engineer who spent her time, you know, building satellite acquisition systems and, you know, mid thirties, uh, former Marine, NCO, Stanford graduate who grew up in the Valley. And the, the, the diversity of our approach and our thought and our strengths is what makes us such a tight team. That doesn't mean we don't fight like cats and dogs sometimes. But, but it's, we do it in a manner that is respectful of the need we have for somebody different than themselves. And I, you know, in a corporate culture, that's really hard to achieve. You don't have the freedom to pick your friends or the people that work for you. And I think that that becomes debilitating sometimes because you can't look at somebody and say, you know, you're a great idea generator, you're a great innovator, and I need you, but you're not going to carry this idea to the end. And I need somebody who knows how to carry things. Mm-hmm. So I need you now. I'm not going to need you next week. So what, and what do you do with those people?
0: Right right and i think that that's totally comes down to leadership uh it's why i like having uh people like you on Pete, because it's this this sort of diverse thinking style your background and you know the the military has provided you a very specific thinking style then how do you the way that you've applied it to the corporate world brings a very unique perspective because you've had to as you said you know in in uh, when you had the brigade it's 5000 people right? and and you know that that Sort of first line in the middle, they're sort of running everything because you can't get in front of 5,000 people every day, right? So you have to make sure that the leadership is driving everybody to be very successful because, in your case, it was life and death. In the business world, it's they're going to fail. How do we course correct uh, in most cases? So I think that it comes down to leadership. And to your point, there is no great preparation degree. You can have an MBA, but that doesn't mean you're going to make a great leader. Uh, or even if you've gotten promoted internally, doesn't mean you're going to be a great leader. <laughs> you might end up in that, you might be one of the guys in the file folder, how you started and you might not get picked, but you're going to be a fantastic leader. You just got to kind of keep pressing forward. So I think leadership is everything to do with the success of the people around them. And, uh, it comes from everywhere.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I think it's, uh, to determine the answer to that question is you need experience. And you need repetition over time getting it. I, I think I was um, fortunate because my military service challenged me in ways that, that most people will not get in their lifetime in very short periods of time. So I learned a lot about, it. I, I laughed at the, you know, it, it was trained in a way of thinking in a manner that enables you to make decisions and then sent to Iraq where none of it worked. And had to reinvent systems on the fly to deal with with problems we had no imagination would ever be presented to us in, in a very rapid manner. So, so those of us who served overseas in that environment come back with a very different mindset in terms of, of problem solving and leadership, and and also a certain amount of confidence in in ourselves and the people around us. Not because we're you know we're brilliant or anything, but because we know ourselves really well we know what we're not, and we, and we know what we are, which enables us to build um, these really cool, diverse teams that that are very responsive to one another. And then, you know, the leadership application at that point is, is was in fact, you know, fine tuning a diverse team is ensuring that the diversity lasts and is healthy and feeds on itself.
0: Well, you know, I could just keep talking to you for Another half hour. But this has been uh, really fantastic and inspiring and insightful in so many ways. I think the application and the things you're doing uh, by once again, bringing sort of the, the battlefield to the boardroom and just your commitment to solving these big, complex problems by just simplifying them using things that are proven out there, Steve stuff and others. I mean, it's just, it's this combination and this willingness to look for answers in all kinds of places, I think should be a lesson for all of us listening today. So Pete, it's really been a pleasure. And as I said, an honor having you on my, on the What's Next podcast with us uh, today.
1: Thanks so much for the invite. I really enjoyed it.
0: That was awesome. I'm not sure how you felt through that podcast, but I was thoroughly engrossed in the entire set of nuggets that he just continued to drop through that entire conversation. The whole innovation exhaustion, the difference between innovators and makers and hackers, love that. And then just this whole thinking around deploying and, and making sure you design what people are actually looking for versus just creating things that you want to do, thinking about the customer. And then it's really hard to change internally as an organization and as individuals, but it's necessary if we want to keep pushing ourselves forward, pushing our people forward, pushing our companies forward. So I hope you really enjoyed this podcast with Pete Newell. Thank you for joining me today on What's Next. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, share it with your friends, and I'll look forward to having you back again next time. Have a great day.